Hi, this is Dylan Bird, and this is the podcast edition of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly show that puts local issues in a global context, giving insight into our cities, rights, culture, democracy, energy, and the environment. The Grapevine is broadcast live on Triple R every Monday from 9am till midday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Coming up in the first hour this morning, going to be having a bit of a focus on human rights law. One of the major stories nationally over the past week has been the High Court um, effectively uh, ruling that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful. And there's been news just out this morning from Immigration Minister Andrew Giles that this decision has resulted in so far around about 80 people being released from immigration detention. So we're going to be catching up with David Mann, good friend of this show, good friend of the station. He's the Executive Director at Refugee Legal. We're going to be talking about the implications of this ruling in the High Court for um, asylum seeker policy, refugee policy going forward, and what it means for those who are still uh, detained by the Australian government uh, and may, under this decision from the High Court, be entitled to release. So that's coming up very soon. Also going to be catching up with um, Australian-Palestinian human rights lawyer Rawan Araf, who's the executive director and principal lawyer of the Australian Centre for International Justice. And they've uh, just lent their support to an attempt from Palestinian human rights organisations seeking more details, transparency, around the Australian government's arms exports with Israel. So, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of coverage of this conflict over the past um, month or, or five weeks or so. I know, you know, a lot of people in our communities are doing it really tough at the moment. You know, we saw those scenes um, in Melbourne over the past weekend. So I know it can be kind of hard to continually be exposed to this kind of news, but I think this move from a number of human rights organisations supported by the Australian Centre for International Justice is a really important one to think about in terms of the integrity um, or transparency of Australia's defence relationships with other countries, especially in light of that sort of devastating offensive that we've seen in Gaza. Also going to be catching up with um, a leading expert on environmental law and policy, Professor Andrew McIntosh from the Australian uh, National University. He's, over the past couple of years, been really critical of the carbon credit scheme, which is a key part of Australia's emissions reduction efforts to achieve net zero emissions. He's recently co-authored an article in The Conversation just sort of highlighting some of the flaws of this scheme. And I mean, for many of us who aren't really kind of invested in this space, um, it can be a little bit hard to wrap our heads around how carbon credits work and, and their role in bringing about emissions reductions more broadly. But some of the problems that um, Andrew has identified in the scheme are really worth hearing about. And he certainly knows a lot about it. Also coming up, someone who has turned their love of hanging out in live music venues into a career is Dr. Dr. Sam Whiting. He is the lecturer, a lecturer in creative industries over at the University of South Australia. He's just um, published an academic text called Small Venues, which looks at the, the role of small live music venues in kind of the, the cultural life of a city, the music scene um, that so many of us uh, love to enjoy. And I suppose we might intuitively know how these spaces um, play a really important role for us and the communities we walk within. Um, but Sam has taken a really up-close look at this. He's launching it at the Old Bar, which is a perfect place um, to be putting this book out into the world. 
Triple R. The High Court last week ruled that indefinite immigration detention is unlawful. The decision overturns a 20-year-old precedent, and according to the Immigration Minister Andrew Giles just this morning, it's prompted the release of some 80 people who have been languishing in prison. David Mann is Executive Director of Refugee Legal, a good friend of this show and the station more broadly, and joins me now on the line. Hello, David. How are you going? Oh, very well. Very well. Good to be with you. Yeah, great to have you on the show. And, I mean, let's go to that breaking news firstly. What's your response to uh, the fact that sort of 80 people so far have been released from immigration detention as a result of this ruling? Well, it's critical that that occur because, um, you know, it's finally been found by the High Court that indefinite detention is unconstitutional and unlawful. And it is absolutely critical that the government now move immediately to release people who who have been detained unlawfully in accordance with that ruling. Um, every day is not only another day of damage to people detained in these circumstances, but also uh, it's unlawful. And, um, and so it's critical the government move absolutely, uh, as quickly as possible, absolutely urgently, to release people who are, who are covered by this ruling. And uh, there are more people than those released that need to be released. And I'm sure this has been a busy week for you. You are at the airport, so that's the kind of the background noise that people can hear. Um, yeah. How many people are there that could be released really soon as a result of this decision? Well, the government in the case, in the High Court, the government flagged in the case that it could be um, at least 92 people. They, they flagged that there were, I think it was 92 as the figure. Um, that uh, potentially is a conservative figure. Now, I don't want to speculate uh, about precisely how many. I think there needs to be more work done on that. Uh, and uh, some of those people may, not, may well need to have their cases re-examined. Uh, they may need some urgent legal advice. But the, the bottom line is that anyone who cannot be removed from Australia in the, in the you know, reasonably practically, that is, in, in the foreseeable future, that is, they, can't, they just can't be practically um, removed from Australia in the foreseeable future, um, uh, cannot any longer be detained. And uh, that may well be more than 92 people. We don't know yet precisely how many will be covered. And there may well be some significant controversy around that. There may well be, um, you know, further, uh, you know, even further legal action uh, to press for people who um, uh, cannot be removed to be, uh, to be released. So we just don't know yet. Yeah, and I wonder if you can take us back to 2004, the, the case of Al-Khattab versus yeah. Godwin, which was the, yeah. the case that kind of set the precedent for um, you know, right. Im immigration detention, um, uh, indefinite immigration detention being a key pillar, I suppose, of, of the government's refugee policy. Yeah. Can you sort of give us a bit of a sense of how that has informed um, you know, various governments' responses to this issue going back over the past 20 years? Yeah. Yeah, well, in that case, which is a High Court case, of course, and uh, set this precedent, 20-year-old precedent, the Elkhead case, um, what the, the High Court ruled by a majority of um, four to three, um, so a slim majority, they ruled that indefinite detention was, um, was lawful. It was lawful and constitutional. And what that did was it essentially enabled successive governments since then to detain people for years on end, like with no end in sight, uh, in some cases for well over a decade, uh, and, uh, and with, with the effect that detention could possibly be forever and detention without charge. So that's what occurred. And I can also say something, Dylan, and this needs to be further discussed as we go on. It wasn't uh, really last week, but there's... Uh, and I can tell you from our experience at Refugee Legal very directly, we have brought many challenges on precisely the same grounds mm. that were brought in the current case 
And time after time, governments, successive governments of both Labor and Coalition, settled these cases to avoid... Uh, and settled them on the basis, presumably, that they thought there was real risk of losing the case in the court. So there's a real history to this, too, of many challenges being brought and then essentially people being released from detention before the case could be fully decided. In other words, in, it, it, some may say, potentially, not only because the government thought there was risk in losing, but also a concern that it might set a precedent which would then take away their power and ability to continue to detain people for, you know, indefinitely and possibly forever. That's really interesting. And so this is a real concern itself, you know, and I, I think that we need to have a real look at this. How is it that it can be that um, successive governments have been able to do this? Absolutely. That's sort of really interesting history. And, I mean, this decision was made based on the successful argument that the government detaining refugees indefinitely breaches the constitution because it allows the executive to exact punishment on an individual and sort of um, goes against the separation of powers in the constitution. That's my kind of understanding of it. Does this have broader implications for the government's refugee policy generally? Because of course, you know, punishment is part of the whole the whole package here. That That's how they've tried, tried to deter people from coming to Australia in the first place. Well, look, the first thing is we don't have the full written reasons of the court yet. It's very unusual, not, not unheard of, but very unusual for the court to make its ruling without issuing uh, what, what is called a judgment, of course, a detailed judgment setting out the, the reasoning. Um, in this case, they decided to uh, make the orders affecting the release of the, of the person that had brought the case. And that, of course, uh, sets the precedent. But we don't have the detailed reasons yet mm. uh, about the basis for the decision. But look, um, in, in, in terms of your question more broadly, it, it is really fundamental uh, in terms of uh, what it means more broadly in terms of policy. I mean, this practice has inflicted untold damage, devastating and often lifelong harm on so many people, including people who... Are, have been found to be refugees, found to be in need of protection, unable to return due to the dangers. People who've um, had this extraordinary second wave of suffering, uh, this infliction of further harm on them, you know, children, women, men, families, um, who fled from harm and then have been subject to further harm as a, as a consequence of this policy of indefinite detention, have endured a second wave of suffering. And I think that it, it's also at fundamental odds the policy has been at fundamental odds with the obligations we've signed up to under various treaties, uh, under which detention can only be imposed where absolutely necessary as a, as a measure of last resort. And, and, and instead, what we've seen is the opposite, detention by default and possibly forever. So but I just want to add something else too in terms of your question. It stands to reason as well that um, the policy has been at fundamental odds as well with Labor's own stated policy in its policy platform, which and I'm going to say verbatim here, um, the policy is that immigration detention that is indefinite or otherwise arbitrary is not acceptable. Well, what's happened um, under this government and previous governments is that we've had exactly that, indefinite and arbitrary detention, the very definition of arbitrary detention. Uh, and, uh, and so this High Court ruling essentially... Um, uh, means that uh, we now have a ruling by our highest court that that practice
process is unlawful. I wonder if we can speak about the specific case that this was over. So this was a, um, a Rohingya yeah. refugee referred to um, in media reporting and the like as NZYQ. So here's someone, in my understanding, who had not been able to obtain citizenship of Myanmar, was stateless, arrived in Australia by boat in 2012, um, was granted a temporary visa but then cancelled in 2015 after he committed a, a serious criminal offence and was spent sort of time in prison as a result of that. So can you just sort of speak, I suppose, to that case and, and the broader commentary around this, which, you know, needs to be acknowledged as well with, you know, the potential threat to the community, I suppose, that, that might come from releasing some people into, into society? Look, it's very important that we do, um, yeah, that we do discuss this. That, he, that the um, the man who brought the case um, was locked up indefinitely um, on the basis that uh, he had committed serious criminal offences uh, and uh, and that uh, that he would, he would pose a risk to the community. That appears to be the basis of the government refusing to release. Now, here's the and and, and this is a situation that faces a number of people detained uh, who have committed offences and sometimes serious offences in the past. Um, now, here's the issue. These are people who um, uh, have already served a sentence in Australia under the criminal justice system. Mm. And were it not for our, for our policy uh, of, inde of indefinite detention, would have been um, eligible for release into the community on parole. Um, so, in other words, what's happened here is that after serving a sentence for an offence, People have, without a crack of life, been moved from prison. Instead of being released into the community uh, on parole, they have been moved straight into indefinite detention uh, and then indefinite. So it, it constitutes a double punishment of the very worst kind. Uh, that is, for the very same thing that they served their sentence, uh, for the very same subject matter, the offences, they've then been um, placed into indefinite detention, possibly forever, but certainly for years on end, uh, with no end in sight. And uh, this uh, lies at the, at the heart of the problem, is that we've had in our country this discriminatory and extraordinarily unfair and unconscionable uh, uh, policy of consigning people to um, unending detention as a, a form of double punishment, essentially. And, uh, and so I think that, that that is critical to, to remember, is that, yes, serious offences are uh, uh, in the background of, of the plaintiff, uh, but he had, as far as I'm aware, I think it's very clear from the facts, he had already served his sentence and uh, would otherwise have been eligible for parole like anyone else in the Australian community. This is something that I've been trying to wrap my head around amid some of this, this commentary and, you know, it should be said in some quarters, fear-mongering around that the potential threat some of these people could pose because if you then question whether some of these people should be released, then you, you then need to question the whole kind of, you know, criminal justice judicial system broadly, don't you? Like whether parole is even something we should be doing. And, you know, we, we do that for a reason. People have served time and there's various kind of rehabilitation programs and the like to facilitate people's re-entry into society. But that's something that is done all the time for yeah. other people. So how is this any different? Well, the first thing, there are a range of issues that are raised by this, Dylan. The first is that immigration detention has no infrastructure and is not designed for any rehabilitation. So we essentially take people out of the context of rehabilitation within the, the criminal justice system and put them into, an, uh, to put them essentially deprive them of their liberty in a, in a place in immigration detention with absolutely no re rehabilitation, no infrastructure, if that's not the purpose, uh, and potentially people that will end up living in our communities. So that itself is, is a, a critical point, I think, to make. Um, I think that one of, the, one, of the, one of the fundamental issues here is that what we need to do is bring this approach into the mainframe. 
um, and, uh, and we need to bring our whole approach to detention into the mainframe uh, so that we apply um, the ordinary principles that we do for anyone else in the system, that if you commit an offence, uh, you do your time, and then you are eligible for release into the community. That is the presumption. Instead, what we've had is the opposite presumption, that we just can detain someone forever in those circumstances, which is, it is a fundamental violation of their basic rights, but is also at radical deviation with the ordinary protections of Australian law. Uh, and uh, so what we need to do is make this and sort of... We, we need to normalise it in our country. I think that, that's really critical. Yeah, and, and just the, last... The other thing... Yeah, sorry, go ahead. Look, the other thing that I did want to come back to... I just want to come back to something that you raised before about what this means more generally for mm. policy. And I think here there's something really important. Again, um, it, it hasn't really been noted uh, much yet, and uh, understandably given the momentous... Uh, the momentous decision that was made, which really uh, is, is, you know, at, at its heart, um, a fundamental victory for the rule of law, it's a fundamental victory for the right to liberty and for common humanity, uh, I would say, too. But also, um, this decision um, the, the, and the, the effect of this decision is only for people who can't be removed from Australia in the foreseeable future. But... Most people who are currently held, well, over a 1,000 people currently detained in Australia are still going through a legal process. This decision doesn't to them. And so what I think is critical here, going to your point about what this means more broadly, is it is really a new dawn of immigration. This decision, I think, um, heralds a new dawn uh, for immigration detention in this country where the government should now seize the opportunity... Uh, for fundamental reform of the system by setting up for everyone else who's detained, setting up uh, a, an independent panel like a parole board, which we just don't have, uh, to regularly review every single person's detention based on those principles that I mentioned before, the established principles uh, uh, under international law that detention only ever be imposed where it is absolutely necessary and only as a measure of last resort. So, in other words... Uh, Independent, an independent body with expertise to recommend to the government alternatives to the indefinite detention of everyone else. That seems like a very logical step. And I mean, you've been involved in this space for a very long time, so I, I know you wouldn't use the terms a new dawn lightly. Just very quickly, uh, you know, jetting off to Canberra, how is this informing the kinds of conversations you're having with those in government and in policy now that we have this decision from the High Court? Dylan, it'll be central. You can be assured I'll be using every single opportunity uh, to make this case that, that we now need to... Uh, everyone needs to roll up their sleeves and work on ensuring that um, there is fundamental reform of this system uh, so that we end the dark, this very dark practice of locking up people indefinitely, possibly forever, uh, and instead look at alternatives uh, to, to that so that we stop depriving people of their basic liberty and that we move to a system that is just, that is fair and that reflects fundamental values of, uh, you know, of humanity. And I, I think that uh, there is a real opportunity here to do that. And uh, what we would be doing in doing that, we would bring our approach in relation to people seeking asylum, to refugees and migrants into the mainframe of our system so that people... So we don't, as a default, detain people, but as a default... Uh, we look at how to ensure that people uh, are not locked up 
uh, indefinitely, but rather are given their freedom. David, really appreciate you spending a good amount of time with us this morning, especially on a really busy day. I hope we haven't kept you too long from your gate and that your flight leaves on time. I um, hope to speak <laughs> no. again soon. <laughs> Oh, look, great to be with you. And uh, no, look, it looks like I'm uh, looks like I'm okay. It hasn't like, the plane hasn't left yet. Okay, right. You're not sprinting down the um down the courseway. That's good to know. We'll um speak to you again soon, David. Thanks nah, so much. I should be alright. Thanks, Dawn. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Bye. See ya. Bye. David Mann, the Executive Director of Refugee Legal, talking there about the High Court's um, watershed decision, according to David, about the um, indefinite immigration detention in Australia being unlawful. So more to come from that. We're going to have the, the High Court's full kind of um, uh, sort of reasoning for that decision in due course, of course, but a, a really significant moment, I suppose, in refugee um, law and policy in Australia. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Palestinian human rights groups have launched legal action in the federal court seeking access to information about Australia's arms exports to Israel. This comes after reports the government approved more than 320 defence exports to the Middle East country over the past six years, sparking fears Australian equipment is being used to perpetrate human rights abuses in Gaza. Rowan Araf is Executive Director and Principal Lawyer of the Australian Centre for International Justice, who is supporting this legal action. And she joins me now on the line. Hello, Rowan. Thank you so much for speaking to us on Triple R. Thank you so much for having me, Dylan. And so, I mean, firstly, what do we know about Australia's arms exports to Israel? Not very much. <laughs> um, that's uh, part of the reason why our clients are seeking to undertake this very specific process. Uh, it's called a preliminary discovery. It's an application um, where we are asking the court to make orders to compel the Minister of Defence for Defence to provide us with the permits, access to the permits, uh, so that we can determine what we think that they're made on, um, they're made in error. Uh, and then that would make us uh, think about and and you know um, see about next steps, which is to seek judicial review of the decisions because we think they're made in error. Uh, the law um, provides um, that decision makers and of course the Minister for Defence must take into account criteria relevant to whether or not the um, the uh, there is a risk to uh, there there is a risk that if the permits were approved they would um they would uh there would be a risk to human rights or that the country where they would be exported to uh might use them contrary in ways um might they might be used um in ways contrary to australia's international legal obligations and what are those international legal obligations they are things like australia's um uh obligation to respect and ensure respect for international humanitarian law which is found in the geneva conventions they are um found in the genocide convention where australia must prevent um the crime of genocide from being committed um and other international obligations like um as i said before human rights under the relevant international human rights treaties so um they're the things that must be considered and as i said to you before we just don't know how the assessments are being made, um, other than that specific number that came out in Senate estimates or when people um, do freedom of information requests every now and then to try and determine uh, where, are Israeli, uh, where are Australia's exports going to, all sorts of different countries where we are concerned about um, uh, where there's conflict, for example. So it's not just Israel that's, the, that's an issue here. You know, Australia's been exporting 
um, arms material to South Sudan, to Sudan, to Saudi Arabia and the UAE, other conflict zones. So other situations of um, where belligerents are involved in um, conflict or situations of military occupation. And so I think I think it's right to say that Australia's process is so opaque and so and shrouded in so much secrecy that this attempt is really just trying to lift the veil so that we understand more about the process. And I think we're in the dark more than any other country in the world. I think um, it's fair to say, you know, at least in the UK, there is processes where you understand the licenses that are being made um, in the US. Um, uh, again, similarly, there was an issue for, with the lack of transparency in the past, and that's been changed. And so I think this is an attempt where we're just so frustrated with what's happening. And my clients want to know um, how the decisions are being made and what the exports are and what material is actually being exported so that we can determine whether we can, um, you know, go to the next step. And, and as you say, I mean, arms exports in terms of where and, and how much and what kind of equipment, where it's going and the like, it is notoriously opaque in Australia. We have found out about it more through freedom of information requests and and um, and, and journalists and the like doing this this kind of work, but it's very patchy. And as part of that, you know, we've discovered, as you referenced, that, you know, we are exporting arms to, to countries like Saudi Arabia, UAE, Israel, and some others as well. Now, those countries have pretty poor human rights records, we can say it pretty bluntly. Is there any mechanism in place for assessing whether Australia has properly, I suppose, analysed or investigated whether the weapons would be used in, in a proper way, whatever that means, as part of granting these permits? Well, there, you know, that criteria that I read to you before, that's in the, the legislation and the regulations that decision makers and the Minister for Defence must take into account in whether or not they approve permits. And Defence has been on record in the past saying that, you know, um, they've commented pub publicly that if an export might be used to facilitate human rights abuses, a permit would be refused. Now, we welcome that statement that is reassuring, but we don't know if that is the actual case. There's no oversight in terms of how those decisions are being made. And so, uh, you know, in the case of Israel, we're concerned because we've heard statements from ministers um, in the from the government this past these past four weeks, including from the Minister for Defence himself, where they state that Israel is complying with international humanitarian law. And if that's the statements we're getting from the minister in that regard, then how are those decisions being made if they think the particular exports are um, not going to be used uh, for the abuse of human rights. Um, uh, so, you know, I think it's it's um, it's not to say, like, we we just don't know at this stage. Um, you know, it's 322 permits in the last six years. Um, and, um, you know, we are concerned about the permits, of course, which is why we're trying to seek more information about them. Um, you know, Senate at Senate Estimates, defence officials are always saying, um, you know, this could be these could be dual use, but we know, and and they very well could be. What does that mean? So there's, um, they often say that you know it could be radio equipment or sporting equipment or things of that nature. So um, uh, components or um, material that could be for civilian use, but also could be used in um, in a military sense. Um, so there's um, uh, there's that sometimes they kind of want to focus on that aspect also. But, I, you know, I think even with regards to that, I think we would want to know 
Um, why is it that, for example, um, radio equipment and other software itself is not, you know, we want to know how that material is being used because it could very well be being used in Israel's war machine and their war efforts against the Palestinian people. So I think in that, you know, kind of um, those kinds of exports are still, you know, of relevance, whether or not defence officials think that because they could be used for civilian purposes or they are dual use rather, um, then that means they might not, uh, you know, be contrary to Australia's inter in used contrary. They might not be used in situations contrary to Australia's international obligations or um, for the or at risk of abusing human rights. But nonetheless, I think we still need to know what are those uh, what are those specific purposes? Um, and then there's also the other issue where we do, there is public information available where companies are providing components that are being used in um, tanks, for example, um, on Israeli tanks. And so, you know, that to us is very problematic and still a part, um, still feeds into Israel's war machine, which, as we know, is for decades has been abusing Palestinian human rights and has um, committed grave violations of international law uh, daily for decades. You know, the occupation has been going on for decades. It's not that it began on the 7th of October after Hamas's violent attacks. Um, so I think that, um, you know, we are looking, we are lo seeking more information. Our clients deserve to know. Um, and also the Australian public deserve to know. I think it speaks to a broader issue about transparency um, in Australia's um you know, Australia's broader government decision making where, um, you know, uh, decisions are being made in our name, essentially, and we are just in the dark about about them. Yeah, and there seems to be in some respects, kind of a disconnect between how we talk about our defence industry, our defence export industry, and you have, you know, politicians lining up alongside manufacturers and talking about you know, South Australia, for example, is being a hub for, for defence uh, material manufacturing and the like. Um, but then there's this great veil of secrecy around how those that kind of equipment is used when it is sold on to other countries and that sort of thing. I suppose with the absolute horror in Israel and Gaza at the moment, you know, we're seeing right across our television screens the human costs of, you know, what these weapons do. Do you think in the public's mind that makes us more aware and perhaps critical um, and desiring of more transparency about around what is being sold on to other countries in Australia's name? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's always been a desire to know more. Um, you know, we've been in this space for a few years and we have connected with several civil society organisations who've been completely frustrated with this issue. Uh, you know, it was, it was really around the arms exports to Saudi Arabia and UAE that, um, you know, civil society groups began to get together, form a coalition to see how it is that we can, um, you know, push back against this real um, uh, secrecy around these issues. Um, and, you know, there's broader questions with, there's broader questions which have been raised in Senate estimates about the ongoing monitoring um, and whether or not that's done is uh, done in the Australian Defence Export Controls Office. And we don't think that it's and that it has it is being um, uh, that exports are being monitored in that sense. I mean, they they've said in response to questions from Senator Shoebridge, um, it was at the time that you know it does inform future export permit processes. But I think that's a broader issue around. Um, you know, monitoring uh, how those exports are being used. I think it's still a problem and um, it's probably an issue that's 
that activists around the world and lawyers engaged in this process and obviously communities from uh, affected communities um, need to work um, more to, uh, I guess, bring broader advocacy around this issue. Yeah. Um, because the arms trade treaty does, for example, talk about it, but I don't think, I'm not sure if it's strong enough, to be honest with you, um, in terms of whether that's reflected in the legislation. I, I don't think it is. Um, yeah. Speaking with Rowan Araf, Executive Director and Principal Lawyer of Australian Centre for International Justice and, and speaking in the wake of Palestinian human rights organisations launching legal action in the Federal Court of Australia, seeking access to permits um, allowing the export of arms and weapons to Israel. And this is legal action supported by the Australian Centre for International Justice. I wonder if you can just sort of talk through the practicalities of this legal challenge. I mean, is this a first and, and, and what does it actually mean sort of going forward in terms of transparency around these these contracts and permits? Yeah, I mean, I guess I could start by saying it's a bit of an uphill battle at this stage because, um, first of all, it's the first legal challenge in relation to arms exports processes more broadly. And this first attempt, I'm not sure if I mentioned it at the beginning, but it's um, the process is called preliminary discovery. And so what we're doing in order, what we're trying to do at first instance is gain transparency over the decision-making process um, by seeking an order from the court to compel the release of those documents. Um, and as I said, it will allow us to determine whether or not we can then seek judicial review of decisions that have been made because we think they've been made in error. Um, uh, um, so it is the first. I um, And it's not the first in the world. I mean, um, organisations have been uh, and affected communities have tried to... Um, uh, challenge this processes, particularly in the UK, that at least I know of briefly. Al Haq, for example, our first uh, our client, the first prospective applicant, has um, you know first brought on a case. I think in the UK in two thousand and nine, they weren't successful. Um, I'm not sure of the details of why it wasn't successful, but then again, there was a major case in the last couple of years in the UK that um, these amazing activists called the Campaign Against Arms Trade in the UK brought forward against um, the UK Secretary of Trade or Defence relevant, whatever the relevant ministry is called there, um, to try and, and uh, uh, suspend, if you could say, I mean, the overall purpose was to try and suspend exports to Saudi Arabia, uh, to Saudi Arabia for uh, where it was being used in the brutal war um, against the people that was affecting people in Yemen. Um, unfortunately, they weren't successful too, and I think that decision came out in June. So it speaks to a broader process about, you know, the um, the arms control process worldwide and um, how Western governments are approving these permit the, these licenses, these permits and whether or not they're taking into regard all relevant information um, and how they're making those assessments in really, you know, granting these behemoth companies, um, arms firms, to profit off violence and so much killing. Um, and, you know, it sometimes feels like we're such tiny people <laughs> trying to take on such an enormous um, industry and, you know, governments who are, readily, happily engaged with those industries. I mean, one of the things our clients did was, you know, in 2021, we wrote 
um, together we put in submissions with other Palestinian human rights organizations to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And one of the recommendations we made was to end this fostering of defense part, um, defense industry partnerships between Israel and, and Australia. You know, um, successive governments since 2017, I think that's when the memorandum of understanding was entered into between Israel and Australia to really foster and encourage and develop this like um, these partnerships and cooperations between, uh, you know, defence industry in Australia and Israel. And, and those arms exports have inc increased over that time, I understand. They've increased and, you know, Australia has um, imported arms and there's been private ventures between Israeli firms and Australian firms. You know, Elbit Systems, which is the creator of much of the drone technology and other security technology around the, the annexation wall, apartheid wall, in the West Bank and the border wall, the border fence inside in Gaza, um, you know, has um, a wholly owned subsidiary in Australia. They've engaged even with the Melbourne government on developing, you know, artificial intelligence capabilities um, and the like. They've set up this um, some kind of like a I don't know what to call it, um, a cooperation between um, academia, defence industry and all of these, other, you know, and, and government as well to, um, you know, in the veneer of like developing artificial intelligence or whatever it is. It's not really my area, um, but I think, you know, I use that as an example to say, to talk about this fostering of this defence industry partnerships between Israeli companies and Australian firms um, and Australian companies. So I think, um, you know, this has really developed and has been encouraged by our government in total disrespect for the serious violations that Israel is committing against the Palestinian people. You know, we're talking about the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution, um, war crimes, uh, endless occupation, which is illegal under international law. And we're going to see um, that play out in the International Court of Justice in the next couple of months where Palestinians have sought an advisory opinion about the illegality, the status of the illegality of the occupation because it has um, been permanent. You know, it's over five decades of occupation. Um, and so, you know, what we said in that submission, just to go back to my earlier point, was we called on the Australian government to end that, you know, end that de defence industry partnership. We also called on the government to impose an arms embargo. Um, we subsequently then joined um, a civil society statement that was led by Palestinian groups to call for a two-way arms embargo. And in fact, that has just been released again, where because of the moment that we're in, the real crisis and um, the real concern for the commission of um, genocide and other international crimes in Gaza, um, that, you know, this is what we should be focusing on. And I think it goes to a broader point, Dylan, we're so concerned, we're so frustrated with the fact that Western governments have not called for a ceasefire and that Palestinians continue to die in thousands, you know, injured, people unstuck under rubble. We've got people who are starving and can't get access to fresh water or clean water. And mind you, water has never been cleaned for Gazan people in Gaza before 7th of October because they were subjected to a 16-year illegal blockade. Um, so, uh, you know, I think that is like, well, how can we then, the Western countries are so complicit in providing impunity for Israel and letting them continue with these 
this massacre that we're seeing in Gaza, how is it that we can then try and stop it? And if that's trying to look at, um, you know, ending licenses and arms export processes, maybe that's just one way we can try and fight this um, war machine from continuing to attack civilians in the way that they have. Yeah, that's right. And this is sort of, you know, what sort of one measure that you're assisting with at the moment. And I know we're sort of short on short on time, but I just wanted to ask sort of very briefly, it's a very big question, actually. But I mean, you mentioned the International Criminal Court here, it can be limited in the extent that it can prosecute. And there are um, uh, sort of complications, I suppose, around, um, you know, Israel arguing that it's not party to the ICC and that sort of thing as well. So I'm just wondering what you see as the role of the International Criminal Court in the sort of current context we're in at the moment. So I raised the International Court of Justice earlier. Oh, um, yes, sorry. The International Criminal Court has an ongoing investigation in the situation of Palestine with jurisdiction dating back to 2014. Now there was a major war against Gaza in 2014 by Israel then. Um, so regardless of whether or not Israel is a state party, because Palestine has accepted jurisdiction, um, it, um, it has the ICC has jurisdiction to look at crimes occurring within the territory, but also um, from um, emanating from the territory of Palestine. So that will include, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, crimes committed or alleged crimes committed by Palestinians um, in Israeli territory as well. Um, so, and, you know, the International Criminal Court's prosecutor was recently at the Rafah border crossing, finally. I mean, civil society organisations have been calling on the ICC Office of the Prosecutor's Office to act um, and, you know, act as quickly as he had acted in relation to the uh, Russian aggression in Ukraine, um, you know, where we've got arrest warrants issued against the head of state, you know, um, Putin, which is, you know, a real landmark Um um, arrest warrant in that in the international criminal justice space. So, you know, the International Criminal Court, I should also state, it looks at individual criminal liability. Mm. So look at civilian and military leaders. Um, it should look at civilian Israeli civilian and military leaders for um for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and potentially also the crime of genocide. Our clients just recently filed an Article 15 communication. That's just to say uh, evidence and um um, information to the International Criminal Court's Office of the Prosecutor to say we think you should also investigate the crime of genocide uh, because we think this, you know, it has been committed and, you know, uh, here's information relevant to that crime. They will look at the um, the the genocidal intent and there's been numerous statements um, from Israeli leaders in relation to that. So I think, um, you know, it's... Um, it, there is jurisdiction. The ICC has jurisdiction. Um, it's more about will it act and when should it act? And I think it should because um, Israel has been granted or afforded with so much impunity. Um, Palestinians have no other available, no real avenues of accountability other than, you know, one example we're trying to do is through um, domestic courts in Australia. And we don't know um, where that will go. Um, but we're certainly going to keep trying um, because it's an important um, and serious attempt to look at um, one way of uh, um, holding Western governments accountable for any complicity in relation to the ongoing crimes. Uh, so, yeah, I hope that answered your question about the ICC. It, it does. And with that legal challenge here in Australia, I mean, what are the next steps from here? Where does it go and, and what's the kind of time frame we're looking at? 
Yeah, so we we hope that it will be uh, conducted as urgently as possible. Um, we're still waiting for information and how we act on that information. Um, it's uh, litigation is difficult. It's challenging, um, but we're certainly uh, going to. You know, our clients are very determined. Um, you know, they have been around for decades, many of them, uh, documenting crimes and trying to knock on the doors of international forums and domestic forums for a very long time to seek any form of accountability to hold the Israeli um, state and their leaders accountable and to try and end the occupation and uh, end the apartheid regime that they are facing. Uh, so, you know, it's not the end. Um, it's certainly the beginning um, so we'll just, I guess what we could say is watch this space and uh, we'll we'll see how it plays out. And we're determined to to take all the steps necessary to make sure we we get an outcome um, if we can. It's been wonderful having you on the show, Rowan. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Dylan. Really great questions. I hope they were useful for your listeners. Thank you. I'm sure they were. Rowan Araf, the Executive Director and Principal Lawyer at the Australian Centre for International Justice. So-called carbon credits were a key part of the federal government's path to achieving net zero emissions. These serve as offsets that high-emitting industries can purchase from those that are able to draw down their emissions more cheaply by doing things like scaling back land clearing or planting trees. But the integrity of this scheme has repeatedly come under question with some of the credits, many of the credits in some instances, not actually representing real emissions reductions. One prominent critic is Professor Andrew McIntosh from the Australian National University. He's former chair of the Emissions Reduction Assurance Committee, the government-appointed watchdog that oversees the Emissions Reduction Fund's methods, and now works with a team of researchers through the Australian National University and the University of New South Wales to keep a watch on the carbon credits system. And Andrew joins me now on the line. Hello, thank you for spending some time on Triple R. Good morning, and pleasure to join you. And so you've had a very much a front row seat to these emissions reduction efforts. When did you start to realise that carbon credits were not necessarily delivering on their intended purpose? Uh, very much while I was still chair of the Integrity Committee, there was a number of issues that came up and the committee t- took certain steps to try and address them, but it was clear to me, certainly by... 2018, 2019, that there were some serious issues that need addressing. And so, I mean, just for for listeners who might not have their heads around this scheme, so each carbon credit unit which companies can can sort of purchase to keep their net emissions within the cap determined through the safeguard mechanism is supposed to represent uh, a certain amount of greenhouse gas emissions equivalent to one tonne of CO2. I mean, how is that currently measured? Yeah, it's different for, for each project type. So under the scheme at the moment, there's about 33 to 35 different project types. Each of those project types has a separate method. So for your listeners, it's just a set of rules that tells you the things that you need to do in order to earn credits. A really simple example and a good example of a, of a good project is environmental planting. So there's an environmental planting method. Indeed, there are two of them. And if you want to go out and plant native vegetation and earn carbon credits, you need to follow the method. And if you follow the method, then you get credits at the end. In terms of how carbon sequestration is measured under that method, they use a model, and the model estimates sequestration and the regenerating vegetation, but it's different in in different project types. 
And where do the main problems occur in terms of maybe, you know, assumptions around whether a certain method might be delivering on that broader project of emissions reductions, um, but it sort of actually isn't, isn't really doing so? Yeah, um, it's probably best to sort of wind back and say, okay, how is this market working? And mm. the market's working basically through three project types, possibly four. The big three are a thing called avoided deforestation. The second big one is a thing called human-induced regeneration of even-aged native forests. And the third big one is landfill gas. Now, each of them, for all, all offset projects indeed, what you need to do is come up with a counterfactual baseline. So we're not, it's not measurement that's the big, the big thing here. It's the fact that you're measuring change relative to a counterfactual baseline. So that counterfactual baseline is what would net emissions have been in the absence of the project? That's why it's called the counterfactual, because you're basically measuring against something that didn't happen because you've taken an action. Yeah. Now, almost always the problems arise because the evaluation of what would have happened is wrong. And the best example of that is avoided deforestation projects. These projects, as the title suggests, are about stopping or not chopping down forests that otherwise would have been chopped down. Now, under the, the method that applies here, because of the method that applies here, all these projects are out in western New South Wales. So when I say western New South Wales, think about places like Cobar and Burke. We're talking about that region and even west of that region. So far western New South Wales, out in semi-desert and desert areas. Now, the method was based on the assumption that if people got a particular type of clearing permit, they would have cleared the areas. The problem was that a vast number of, of clearing permits was issued largely for political purposes and in order to give people the option to clear in the future. So ultimately, about 5 million hectares was approved for treatment under these specific type of clearing permits and about 2 million was potentially eligible under the method. Now, the problem was that clearing in New South Wales averages about 20,000 hectares but 2 million hectares was potentially eligible. So immediately people should be saying, uh-oh, that's a very large difference. Mm. And the other key thing about this method was that they assume that if someone got a permit, they would definitely clear within 15 years. And when you do the math, historically out in western New South Wales, clearing rates have averaged about 4,000 hectares. And at an absolute bare minimum, about 350 to 360 hectares needs to be cleared each year. Sorry, in total over a 15-year period. So to meet that, clearing rates would need to jump from about four, an average of 4,000 a year to over about 25,000 hectares a year and hold that level for 15 years. So that's an enormous jump that I don't think anybody would accept is conservative and even realistic. And that's a classic example of where things go wrong. So what's happened here is they've designed a scheme which is meant is based on that clear, simple assumption. If you have a permit, you're going to clear it, but the assumption was wrong. And as a consequence, we've given out millions and millions of carbon credits that are false. 
basically they don't represent the abatement that they're meant to represent. Right, and so yeah, in essence, that that essentially means that you know there's credit being being given for lands that that sort of wouldn't have necessarily sort of been cleared otherwise um, as part of the the kind of mechanism for evaluating this kind of stuff. So um, I mean. The bigger problem here, of course, is that if these emissions reductions are not being delivered, then our emissions effectively are increasing, especially as we sort of approve more sort of coal and gas projects. Is that the sort of fundamental problem that we're seeing and and the problem that will, you know, particularly really emerge into the future as a safeguard mechanism attempts to sort of draw down emissions for those particularly high-emitting industries? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if it was, if those landholders were just giving, being given cash for not clearing forests, they would never have cleared. That would be problematic, but it wouldn't be disastrous. It's disastrous because what's happening here is those carbon credits are permits to emit. So large emitting facilities, they buy these carbon credits and by holding and then surrendering these carbon credits, it gives them an, entitled, an entitlement to increase their emissions above baselines that are set under Australia's carbon pricing scheme, which is that safeguard mechanism that you mentioned. So that's the real problem here, is that every time one of these false carbon credits is being issued and then sold to large emitting facilities, Australia's emissions are effectively going up, or more accurately, they're not going down as quickly as they need to in order for us to tackle climate change and for us to meet the commitments that we've made to reduce our emissions. Speaking with Professor Andrew McIntosh, Director of Research over at the ANU Law School at the Australian National University, speaking about the integrity of Australia's carbon credit scheme. Andrew has co-authored a piece in the conversation on this topic. And and in that piece, you also talk a little bit about the 2022 um, uh, report review commissioned by the government, um, facilitated by Chief Scientist Ian Chubb to review the scheme. And this was, uh, you know, sort of prompted by some of your concerns that you went public with. How did the review deal with your substantial criticisms of the scheme and and where does that leave the government in in terms of the decisions that need to be made to um, sort of restore integrity to it and and make sure that these carbon credits are not being falsely given for projects that aren't actually drawing down emissions? Yeah, so the the review was, I think I can only call it bizarre. They they approached this issue um, and split it into two, basically. They looked at the governance arrangements for the carbon offsetting scheme and they assessed them, and then they separately assessed the methods, those set of rules I said before, governing projects. Now, on governance, the the headline finding was basically the scheme's fit for purpose and everything's all okay here. But then they came to the first issue, that governance issue, and they recommended quite sweeping reforms. So a break-up of the regulator and a separation of powers that previously wasn't there and transparency. So previously there was almost no transparency in the scheme and they recommended that. So we're very supportive of the governance recommendations were made by that review. But then we come across to the methods and they tried a similar sort of sleight of hand. They said, oh, again, everything's largely okay here, but then they recommended that that avoided deforestation method be revoked and that sounds good, and but it doesn't affect the existing projects. And this is where our big grievance lies. There are currently about 1,500, there's actually now 1,700 of these projects that are registered, and most of them are of low quality. And the, the review was specifically, or they, they went about trying to make sure to make recommendations that didn't touch existing projects. And then they went out publicly 
and said that they hadn't seen any evidence basically of overcrediting, despite not looking at a single project. So we find that very hard to understand how anybody, particularly a former chief scientist, can go out publicly and say there's no real problems here after not looking at a single project. And this is despite us bringing a veritable mountain of evidence before them to say there are very many problems with the existing projects. And I think even your listeners, if you're interested, go to a website, www.carbonintegrity.au, and you can actually look at the most problematic project type, which is human-induced regeneration projects. You can actually look at them and see where they're located. Most of these projects, actually all of these projects, are meant to be regenerating even-age native forests, but they are, most of them are located in desert areas and semi-desert areas that have never been cleared. So think about that for a moment. Try to regenerate a native forest in the desert in an area that's never been cleared. That should strike most people as particularly bizarre. And when I say in the middle of the desert, I genuinely mean in the middle of the desert. So the project's now south of Alice Springs, literally in the middle of Australia. There's projects in South Australia, north of Coober Pedy. There's even two large projects located in the Nullarbor Plain. Now, for those who don't know, the Nullarbor is not an Indigenous word. It's a word derived from Latin, Nullarbor, no trees. No trees grow in the Nullarbor, and it's not because the area doesn't receive enough rain to sustain forest. It's because it's got a bedrock of limestone, which ensures that the soil doesn't hold water. And because of that, it can't grow trees. Yet we have two very large projects purporting to grow even-aged forest there. So basically it's a long way of saying there is very obvious problems which are going on here, yet this review tried to tell us all that there wasn't really any problems going on. Yeah, and uh, look, politics are always a factor in, in, in these kinds of areas. And, uh, you know, for those who are not directly invested in, in sort of the climate energy space, it can be a li little bit difficult to wrap your head around this stuff and analogies can help. In your piece, you liken the carbon credit scheme to robo-debt, suggesting that it's badly designed and doomed to fail. What are the kind of parallels there, I suppose? And, and do you think there will be a very public reckoning with the carbon credit scheme and its ability to actively de actually deliver on what it's supposed to do? Yeah, look, you know, for a lot of the projects, they'll get away with it. And they'll get away with it because the counterfactuals, that you know, that assessing a project's performance against what would have otherwise occurred, it's very hard for most projects to actually conclusively be far beyond a reasonable doubt, tear them down. It's also very hard to do, even if you do it academically, it's very hard for people to accept it. The one exception is that human-induced regeneration project. These projects are purporting to grow forests and we can see them and everybody can see them. The quality of satellite imagery that's publicly available is getting better and better every day. And so eventually it's going to become obvious to everybody and the government is not going to be able to defend the fact that it's issued tens of millions of credits to these projects for growing forests that just aren't there. And this has happened despite the fact that the method explicitly prohibits what's going on. So what has occurred is unlawful and then it is inevitable that it's going to fall over. And this is why we draw that parallel to robo-debt. In robo-debt, there was something going on that was unlawful and it was inevitable it was going to fall over because it was causing great injustice. Here we see really great parallels. Again, it's unlawful, it's unethical, 
and it's eventually going to fall over because of those facts. The other key thing here is, just like robo-debt, this has happened while the Australian Public Service has absolutely known what it's doing is not right, it's absolutely known what it's doing is not lawful, and it has kept this thing going. And again, that was exactly the same thing as robo-debt. So we see this as falling apart. It mightn't fall apart in 12 months, but give it 24, 48, it's going to be increasingly difficult for the government to keep this thing afloat. Very concerning. Andrew, it's been really great having your insights this morning and I can uh, recommend your pieces in the conversation on this going back a little while as well. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, mate. Cheers. Have a good day. Cheers. You too. Professor Andrew McIntosh there, Director of Research over at the ANU Law School, speaking about a piece he's co-authored in the conversation all about the integrity of the carbon credit scheme. Andrew's been talking about this publicly for some time, but um, if you want to read a a very digestible version, um, kind of outlining some of the the concerns that he has and others have as well about the integrity of that scheme, it's um, it's really important reading, I think. You can head over to the conversation website. Triple R. Melbourne has long nurtured a vibrant music scene and a big part of that is cultivated in our small venues where live acts play most nights a week. These spaces not only provide crucial early opportunities for artists and bands to play live but also serve as important social environments for people to mingle, feel they belong and participate in the cultural life of a city. They're also businesses and often run to very tight margins, making their futures at times uncertain as gentrification grips hold of certain suburbs, especially those close to the city. This is all explored in a fascinating new book called Small Venues by Dr Sam Whiting, lecturer in creative industries at the University of South Australia. And to talk all about it, Sam joins me now on the line. Hello. Thanks for having me, Dylan. Absolute pleasure. And big congrats on the book. You've um, managed to pull off the impressive feat of turning a passion for live music and hanging out at pubs into a career. How'd you do that? That's right. Uh, Some of my friends call me Dr. Pub. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I I, uh, moved to Melbourne from Brisbane uh, in 2011. I was working in in bars and playing in bands and small venues. And I sort of just got a feel for... um, the fact that those spaces are much more than small businesses, you know, they're social hubs, they're platforms for emerging acts. And I really wanted to explore that through research. Um, so I embarked on a PhD focused on small live music venues, looking specifically at the old bar and the tote. And uh, yeah, what I found was that these spaces that walk quite a tight line um, between um, being, you know, profit oriented businesses, but also, kind of cultural institutions, um, they they don't really act like the small businesses. And, and my main finding is that we really, as a society, um, we should really probably not treat them as small businesses, that I think they are cultural institutions that deserve um, more public support, more community support, and um, hopefully more taxpayer support. So, yeah, it's an interesting kind of... Um, finding i think totally and i mean is there a clear line between what you know determines a a kind of small venue versus a medium-sized or large venue how did you decide which ones to focus on yeah look um that's a good question i think um it's i focused on i tried to focus on venues that were 500 capacity or or less um it really depends there's a few different uh defining factors but I, I would say the sort of two between 200 and 300 cap rooms are what, what I was particularly interested in. Those five five to 800 cap rooms, so your, your corners, um, your max watts, things like that. Those medium tier venues, you know, they 
operate on another level of commercial viability. You know, they can attract these big headline international acts. Um, you know, they've got a kind of a broader market appeal, but those smaller live music venues that we find on our high, stri- high streets, they take greater risks inevitably because they're um, more welcome and opening to hope for, for hosting emerging acts. So I was just interested in that kind of um, risk-taking behaviour, um, the platforming uh, unknown acts, and what are the sort of um, what are the complexities inherent in, in being that kind of small venue that that's taking those kind of leaps of faith um, on on new artists. Yeah, and as you said, you, you focus mainly in Melbourne on the Old Bar and the Tote, but you also um, cover some areas that you've spent, other cities you've spent time in as well. As you said, you're from Brisbane and you're now over in Adelaide working at the University of South Australia. They all kind of serve as case studies for the book. What are some of the, the main things that distinguish the, the music scene and the role of small venues in, say, Melbourne from Brisbane and Adelaide? Well, it's really the policy settings um, and the way that those local and state governments treat small venues as part of their cultural infrastructure and as part of a live music ecosystem. So in Brisbane, um, you know, back in the, the bad old days, it was there was a lot of informal kind of underground venues um, because a lot of the formal venues um, were heavily regulated or there was other things like noise restrictions that were impacting them. So when I was playing in bands in the 2000s, uh, in the valley and things like that, um, most of the spaces we play were playing in were kind of DIY. Um, but what happened uh, is the valley was registered as a special entertainment precinct, um, and a lot of those smaller, more niche venues ended up um, kind of getting homogenized. The idea was to allow later and louder opening hours, so to sort of account for noise restrictions. But what ended up happening was all the kind of mega clubs or the the big um, beer barn uh, style pubs ended up um, having greater market power and then being able to buy out the small venues. So that was an interesting case study and where you've got policy that's actually trying to help small venues, it ends up um, harming them and, and, and helping those more commercial uh, nighttime economy uh, ventures in Adelaide, it's 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 a similar story, but it's more about kind of a bit of a moral panic. Um, in the early two thousands, there was a lot of problems around um, nightlife, and also trying to get more people to move back into the city because there was quite a big exodus um, from living in the CBD following the state bank collapse collapse in the early nineties. So to try and get more people to move back in the city and make it a bit more palatable. Um, all these big residential developments started going up and sort of, um, you know, putting up, you're putting up these massive apartment blocks behind pre-existing live music venues, noise complaints ensue. Um, they don't have an agent change principle in place. So a lot of those venues end up kind of having to reduce their live music. Um, there was also a really dedicated push to move all nighttime economy in Adelaide onto Hindley street, which is kind of the red light district in Adelaide. And, um, that you know has really kind of went against a lot of those small independent venues that were kind of trying to do their own thing that but the other thing about Adelaide is like we we still have a lot of those um independent venues and they have just recently banded together to form the independent independent live music alliance um live music venue alliance which i think they're hoping to take uh to a national level but yeah the real the real difference is the way that each city and each state treats um, it's small venues. I think in Melbourne, because we've got such a 
great infrastructure of um, corner corner pubs and small bars and you know that's been a feature of um, the nighttime economy in Melbourne since the late 80s whereas these other cities um, have come to that kind of European style cultural policy approach quite late you know yeah. um, Adelaide sort of adopted a small bars license in about I think it was 2012 or around there to 2010 maybe um, that's really changed things but um, mainly for people who want to drink orange wine rather than uh, <laughs> go to a gig so yeah it's interesting it's, it's really about the the different policy frameworks that are in place and that's what I'm interested in I guess from a research perspective is how the the political economy tends to impact um, cultural spaces and small venues are the most um, precarious amongst those. It's interesting to hear that in Adelaide, there's a bit of a sort of grassroots effort for small venues to come together and try to advocate as a collective. Because of course, you know, in Melbourne, that happened around the you know the Totes closure. What was it like 13 years ago or so when Save Love Music Australia sprung up? We had Music Victoria emerge out of that, and those kind of agent of change um, laws sort of followed on that that great sort of effort as well. Um, I mean, sort of on that, you talk about physical space in the book and and the role of actual places like within the bricks and mortar of these venues themselves and uh, we've had the tote you know recently saved again from a huge fundraising effort um from the the uh, people who own you know a different bar in melbourne the last chance rock and roll bar who have taken over the tote so there's a great love of these venues but there's also a kind of reality that some of them do close down and live music evolves as well um what is the importance of place versus the the kind of new suburbs and new areas that might spring up and and some of these kinds of venues might emerge yeah well density is really important i mean you're going to have access to like um walk-ins and people living nearby so it's not really viable um for a lot of small venues to operate in the outer suburbs they need to be in the city um close to sort of young people um cultural hubs and and other networks of um yeah, other networks of cultural infrastructure. Um, so when gentrification really starts to put the pressure on these spaces, um, a lot of these businesses don't own the buildings they're operating out of. And one of the one of the really radical interventions that I've seen has been in you know um, the totes the a great precedent here where the community have basically helped to put that freehold into charitable into a charitable trust and I think that's a really interesting example and I'm interested interested to see where it goes but over in the UK um, the Music Venue Trust which is a charity organisation they actually crowdfund um, to uh, buy the freeholds to grassroots music venues to socialize them to basically collectively own them with everyone who's involved in the charity um so that those venues can be run as venues in perpetuity as either not-for-profits or cooperatively owned spaces so um taking that kind of commercial incentive out of the mix um having to always be worrying about rent and other things like that if you can socialize that risk um which is what the music venue trust in the uk has been able to do i think it allows for some really innovative um i guess live music culture really um so i'm interested in, in seeing if uh the tote example will serve as a bit of a precedent in terms of collective or community ownership of uh, live music spaces because yeah as i said again um when rent is continuing to go up and i know public liability insurance is also a massive problem when these overheads which are often beyond the control of venue owners and operators 
um, just keep going up and up and up, then you know ultimately they're just going to be forced to make a hard decision. So I think there is an there is an opportunity there for um, collective um, or cooperative ownership, um, whether it's by the community or it's with the help of local governments. I know um, over here in West Torrens, we have in Adelaide, we have a beautiful a thousand capacity um, historic venue called the Thebi Theatre, which is actually owned by the local council. And I think those kind of um, public institutions are really important for live music infrastructure too. You know, a lot of a lot of these sorts of venues in in Europe, for example, are owned by council or municipal governments. Um, and because they're not they're not for profit spaces, you know, they're publicly owned. It does um, take away a lot of that risk, and they are able to continue to support culture and live music without having to worry about the finances of it. Yeah, speaking with Dr. Sam Whiting, lecturer in creative industries at University of South Australia, all about his brand new book called Small Venues. And, you know, governments love to talk about Melbourne as as a music city, and it can be a huge draw for tourism and that sort of thing as well. But there tends to be a lot of focus on the economics of this and not so much on the social kind of cultural role that these venues play. How can that be sort of factored in more? I mean, you were sort of talking about that just there, but do you see opportunities for governments um, kind of making sure that those social and cultural roles that these venues play can be properly supported going forward? Yeah, I think we need to really get past this economic value of the cultural and creative industries argument. I mean, I think that argument has been made for the last 20 years. Um, I recently had the pleasure of uh, speaking and meeting with some of the architects of the basic income for artists trial that's happening in Ireland at the moment. Um, And they preceded that trial with this big campaign for the arts that was basically like, um, you know, the arts support you in times of hardship and need. Um, You need to support the arts. And it was this really like the cultural value of the arts argument without um, leaning back on that economic argument and i think that is really the more compelling argument if you can make it successfully that is that is the most compelling argument it's like the arts and live music and culture is why we get out of bed in the morning it's the thing that we look forward to in our days and at um over the weekend so we really need to start um making that argument and i think once we make that argument um successfully to governments and to various stakeholders, we'll actually be able to see more wealth in our communities. Uh, the, the economic argument, I think, is actually an argument of diminishing returns mm. because if you continue to just make this cost-benefit ratio argument of every dollar spent is $3 back or something like that, um, you can compare that to any industry um, and and culture might often come out worse off against um, other sectors uh, vying for public money. So the cultural value argument, I think, is much more compelling. I mean, when we think about the push by Musicians Australia to have a minimum rate of pay for musicians at $250, you know, some of the first stakeholders to come out against that were small live music venues. And I was thinking, well, hang on, um, if we pay musicians more, um, they'll spend that many money in music scenes, over the bar, um, on equipment, at rehearsal studios, in recording studios. And then, you know, that builds wealth throughout the sector. Mm. And I, of course, I I understand that small live music venues can't afford to pay every musician $250 a pop. But 
society as a whole can afford it. It's just about trying to find a way to make that work as a policy. I mean, there's a reason why tradies get paid so much is because they had the industrial power and the political muscle to make sure that their um, work was secure and well-paid. I think musicians could have the same. It's just about organizing and advocating um, properly. Absolutely. And I mean, a lot of those people who run small venues are doing so because they want to support the scene and participate in the scene. They're not making those decisions for sort of economic financial reasons. There's a commitment to sort of nurturing that. Um, You've got a launch for the book coming up. It's at none other than Old Bar. What's going to go down? Uh, I'll be in conversation with Dr. Ian Rogers who um, has published a lot on um, live music scenes and grassroots spaces. Uh, and then there'll be, uh, I've got some old mates, um, Keratin, who are a bit of a hardcore band playing afterwards um, to, to roll us out. So that'll be a great time if you want to come down and, and hear more about it. Excellent. Not just a stuffy kind of academic talk. There's going to be a bit of hardcore in there as well, which is great. That's fine. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Dr. Pub, Sam Whiting, lecturer in creative industries over at the University of Australia, talking about, of South Australia, I should say, about his brand new book, Out Through Bloomsbury Small Venues. Catch you again soon. Thanks, Dylan. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show, and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.